All right. Good morning. Wonderful to see you once again. Let me join in the chorus of Happy Mother's Day greetings. It's wonderful to have you all as a part of my life, the, the moms in the room and uh, the spiritual moms in particular, uh, and to my mom who's sitting down there, Happy Mother's Day, and to my wife who's sitting down there, Happy Mother's Day. Uh, but open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We are in part nine of our series in Genesis 1 to 11. This week we're in chapter six. Um, as we get started, is that my microphone? Everything's good? As we get started, I want to start with a scripture from uh, the Psalms. It's Psalm 37, uh, 39 to 40. It says this, The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in him. This is the big theme that I want to keep front and center as we go through our text today. The Lord rescues the godly. They find shelter in him. He saves them. Now, we're in another difficult passage in the book of Genesis. I think I've said that pretty much every week, but they're all kind of challenging. But especially as we get into this section on Noah, the flood, the ark, all these things, global catastrophe, mass extinction, that's a challenging passage of Scripture to look at. And so I want to look at this uh, from a couple different perspectives here, but this is one of the most famous stories in the world. Whether or not you've uh, read the Bible, a lot of people in the world haven't read the Bible, most people have heard of this story, or at least some version of it. Uh, This is not really a Mother's Day topic. (laughs) This is not really a Mother's Day sermon. But but just, you know, I've actually worked really hard to create some connections to Mother's Day. So I hope you'll be proud of me. But uh, this is one of the most popular stories in the world. But the story of the flood, um, one of the things that's interesting about it is it's not the only ancient text to tell us about some sort of global catastrophe related to a flood uh, that decimated the the population. All over the Middle East, China, even among the indigenous peoples of the Americas, we hear stories of a great flood. One of the best examples is the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Babylonian flood story told approximately 1,700 years before the birth of Jesus. In that story, humans have multiplied so much that they become too noisy for the gods who are having trouble sleeping, right? Poor gods. All the mothers know what they're going through, right? So they decide to kill everybody. Not the mothers, the Babylonian gods. decide. All the mothers appreciate the years of not sleeping much because they have babies in the home. But here the gods are frustrated, not able to sleep. The people are noisy. They decide to kill them. One of the gods secretly tells one guy, Gilgamesh, hey, we're going to kill everybody. Build a boat. Okay, he does. He builds a boat. He survives. He offers a sacrifice, becomes popular among the gods. So there's lots of these flood narratives in other cultures that just tell us that something must have happened, something that is still in the memory of many peoples throughout the world. But Noah's story tells it in a specific way, tells it in a way that highlights uh, the, the God of the Scriptures, highlights what we're trying to look at in Genesis, that Genesis is a story that makes sense of our story. So as we look at Noah's story, we're, we're trying to once again discern a little bit of our own story, our, our, our own origins, our own identity, and our own destiny through the narrative of the book of Genesis. But interestingly, this flood account tends to be a favorite children's story. 
You know, it's used a lot in kids' ministries. There's lots of kids' books about the flood, and you get cute illustrations of giraffes' heads sticking out the top of the boat and swinging, smiling monkeys, and and, uh, Noah built an ark and went on a 40-day cruise, you know, but it's not really primarily a kid's story. Because what we don't really emphasize in kids' church is, you know, mass extinction and everybody dying, and that's not really the cute monkeys and giraffes part of the story. And so I mention that because sometimes those of us who are adults, we haven't really thought through some of these really famous Bible stories since we were in kids' church or Sunday school. And we haven't really looked at it from the perspective of a more mature believer. And so I want to help with that a little bit today, maybe, if you haven't examined this story since you were young. Now, I don't want to depress us too much on Mother's Day. We are celebrating the women in our lives, and I can't imagine how disorganized things would have been on the ark if Noah's wife was not there keeping things together. But as we look at this story, I want to provide some application along the way, as well as some personal challenge. So our text is a big chunk, Genesis 6, verse 9 through 7, 24. Uh, there's some more aftermath that we'll get to next week as well. I'm not going to read every single word, but, um, but I want you to follow along with me as we cover a big chunk of text today. So let's start with Genesis 6, 9 to 13. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. The the opening paragraph actually repeats some stuff that we talked about in the first eight verses of chapter 6 where it's, it's kind of summarizing the state of the world as it is. In Genesis 1, as God finishes his project of creation, he observes all of the work he had done, and he declares, this is very good. And then we get, you know, five chapters later, where God looks around and surveys his whole creation, and now he announces, everything is corrupt, so much so that I need to wipe it out and start things fresh. A lot happened in five chapters. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were told not to eat from, grasping blessing apart from God's provision. Cain murdered his brother. Lamech took multiple wives and celebrated violence. The so-called sons of God crossed boundaries with regard to the way they treated women. And in Genesis 6, 5, which we read last week, it said, Everything's hum- everything humans thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So it went from very good to consistently and totally evil. And so God has decided out of the grief in his heart that he is going to wipe out the world. But he chose to save this one family, the family of Noah. It's important to remember, again, God's intent was to create humankind, bearers of his image, to rule the world in his stead, to to bear his image, to remind the rest of creation who God was and what he was like, and to, in the authority of God, to rule and subdue the rest of the world. So God's plan was to partner with humankind. 
Additionally, he promised Eve in Genesis 3, when sin first entered the world, he said, your seed, your offspring, will come and crush the head of the serpent who deceived you. There will be a victory through one of your children in the future. And God was committed to that plan. So he refused to just completely wipe everybody out. He could have done that and created a brand new creature that was, you know, superior to us, but he didn't. He chose this one man and his family so that his plan would continue through their lineage. So Noah is described to us in the beginning of this passage in three ways. We're told that one, Noah was righteous. He was a righteous man. Righteousness is a term of relationship. So for Noah, his relationship with God and his relationship with neighbor was intact. He had a good relationship. There was no sin in the way of the relationship. There was, there was no animosity or unforgiveness or bitterness or hatred or anger. He was righteous. The relationships that we have in our lives that are good, where there's no angerness or bitterness or unforgiveness, our close friends, the people we enjoy being with and enjoy being with us, we could describe those relationships as righteous. Secondly, Noah was described as blameless. This refers to Noah's moral character. Noah did what the Lord told him to do, avoided what God told him to avoid. This language is also used to talk about uh, a proper sacrificial animal later in the sacrificial system. The animal needed to be blameless, which referred to the fact that it couldn't be crippled or spotted or somehow diseased or sick. It needed to be looking nice and healthy and a good animal to be able to be a worthy sacrifice. Noah was blameless. Thirdly, we're told that Noah walked with God. He stuck close with God, fellowship with him. When times got hard, he didn't abandon God. When times were good, he didn't say, I don't need him. He walked with God. Now remember, Noah and another guy named Enoch were the two exceptions in the Genesis 5 genealogy, which everybody else had said, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. But Enoch was the only one, along with Noah, who were told walked with God, and Enoch was rescued from death. And here we actually get a detailed story of how Noah was rescued from death. God rescues Noah. Why? Because Noah walked with God. He was righteous and he was blameless. The Lord rescues the godly. He saves them and they find shelter in him. No one else on earth, we're told, was righteous. No one else on earth was blameless. No one else walked with God, only Noah. That's how morally bankrupt and corrupt the world had become. The world, we're told, was filled with violence. Filled with violence. God told Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, humans filled the earth, but what did they fill it with? Violence and blood. And just like when Cain killed Abel, the blood from the victims of that violence cried out to God, and he had to step in and do something about it. So God speaks to Noah, verse 14. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof and all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. 
So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. So to me, I think this is set up kind of like a sandwich, which is a common literary device in the scriptures. The author makes a statement and then provides some content and then makes a summary statement that refers back to the original statement. So verse 9 said, Noah was righteous and blameless. Verse 22 says, Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Noah's righteousness and blamelessness are displayed by the fact that he did everything as God had commanded him. What did it mean for Noah to be righteous and blameless? He did everything exactly as God commanded him. Now, the New Testament has a lot to say about what it means to be righteous, what it means to have a relationship with God that is intact. In fact, we're told no one is righteous. And we're told that righteousness can't be achieved by following the law of God. So you can't become righteous by doing all the right things. And so we're told that the only way to actually become righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ, who did all the right things for us. Righteousness, therefore, is not earned. It's not created by us. Righteousness is a gift of God. Again, righteousness is a relational word. It speaks to the health of a relationship between two people. And without Jesus, our righteousness with God, our relationship with God is broken. But Jesus fixed that by dying on the cross. And now through faith, through trusting in Jesus, we can be right with God through him. But the book of James provides an important balancing point. He says that faith, so the kind of faith that makes us righteous needs to be accompanied by actions, or else it's dead faith. It's fake faith. It's not the kind of faith that actually leads to true righteousness. It doesn't give access to a right relationship with God. Faith must be accompanied by actions that show the quality of the faith. James 2.24 says this, We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Not just faith that is empty words or thoughts, but faith that is real is faith that leads us to act. Since righteousness then is a relational word, let's apply this relational word to other aspects of our lives. Since it is Mother's Day, think about your relationship with your mom or another important woman in your life. You could say, I have a righteous relationship with with my mom. It's easy to say, but do your actions prove that you have a right relationship with your mom? You might be old enough that you don't have to do exactly as your mother commands you to do anymore, but did you call her or will you call her on Mother's Day or send her a card? Do you tell her you love her? Do you help her move her 7,000-pound china cabinet full of dishes no one's ever been allowed to use? Right? Those are actions that show that you actually have a right, righteous relationship with your mom. For Noah, his righteousness was shown by this fact. 
Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. On the cross, Jesus fixed the broken relationship we have with God. But what are we doing with that new status, that new relationship? How are we fostering that righteousness? How are we living it out? To continue again with the theme of Mother's Day, some people in this room have lost their mom. And I know some of you would say, I'd give everything to have my mom back. So I could spend time with her, I could talk to her, do life with her. Now consider what Jesus has done for you. He's done the equivalent of bringing someone back from the dead in order that you can re-engage with a relationship. Except in this case, you were the dead one. And you have been brought back to life so that you can engage in a righteous relationship with God. Are you going to engage in that relationship, build on that righteousness by actually living it out? Or are you going to intentionally redistance yourself and lead yourself back into death? Righteousness is proved by actions. Noah's righteousness was so real that his actions proved it. He built a giant boat in the desert. He did everything exactly as the Lord commanded him. His righteousness made him look foolish. When's the last time you and I were willing to actually look foolish to show our faith and our trust in God? Noah builds his ark. New Test, or the New Living Translation, which I've been using, modernizes the language to just use the word boat. Traditionally, you may have read it, um, uh, the word ark. The word is used elsewhere in the Bible. For example, um, in Exodus, when Moses' mother rescues him from the slaughter in Egypt and puts him in a basket in the Nile River, the word used for that basket is ark. It's a water vessel used to save people from catastrophe. The dimensions of the ark, again, uh, you know, older translations might use the dimensions of cubits. None of us know what that means. So here we have uh, feet, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. The dimensions are vague. There's no instruction about a curved hull or a pointed bow or anything. But I think the point is not to wonder what ancient, you know, um, shipping uh, you know, construction and speculating on their design and techniques was, but what is inside the ship is the point. Inside the ship, there are four pairs of humans, Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. There are also pairs of every kind of land and sky animal, birds of all kinds, lions, bears, giraffes, squirrels. Additionally, Noah takes extra animals for sacrifice and enough food for everybody to be able to eat. So Noah cuts down a bunch of trees and makes timbers. He collects food, fruits and veggies and nuts. Plus he collects animals. Maybe they just showed up. Maybe he had to chase a few down. I'm not sure. Then he grabs his family. They get on the boat. God closes the door behind them and the flood begins. What did Noah just build? You could say an ark, yes. You could say a boat, yes. But all the language connects back to Genesis 1 and 2. Noah takes wood to make the ark, so he's surrounded by trees. The ark has pairs of people, male and female, image bearers of God are present. These people are living with peace, living with animals in peace in the same living space. And that space is full of provision and food enough for everyone. What did Noah build? 
We're just going to ask the Lord to keep our attention focused when Satan tries to distract us. What did Noah build? It's a new Garden of Eden, a sanctuary for humanity to live in and thrive under the protective hand of God. All the same language from Genesis 1 and 2 is used to describe the ark. It's a clue as to what's happening here. While creation is being destroyed, a new creation is beginning. A new garden is planted. Pairs of humans have been chosen to rule and represent God. God is rescuing the righteous. He has not given up on his plan to rule through his image bearers and bring about a savior for humankind. The earth may have been corrupted, but God is still good and he has not quit. We continue reading in chapter 7, starting in verse 11. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely onto the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on earth died, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry ground died. God wiped out every living thing on earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky. All were destroyed. Only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat, and the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. It's supposed to be sad. It's supposed to be traumatic. One more thing that I want to point out, because it'll come up again next week, is this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right at the beginning of the story, we read this. Earth was formless and empty. And darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The whole world before God ordered creation was covered in water. It was a, a sign of the chaos and, and darkness that the world existed in. The, the, in the ancient world, the idea of the seas and waters was this idea of chaos and uncontrollability. Only the gods could bring order to that place. And here in the chaos and darkness, God brought order and light. Then on the second day of creation, God separates the waters. He put waters in the sky and he put waters below. And on the third day of creation, the waters below he ordered so that they become oceans and lakes and rivers and spaces where there would be land to come out of the water, separating water from land. All of this is happening in the presence of the Spirit, hovered over creation, and his power was present through it all. But now in the flood, all of that reverses. We read that the underground waters erupted, so the waters below erupted up, the waters above came crashing down, and those two waters crashed together. We read that the oceans and lakes all came together, so they crashed together. So all the waters that had been held back by God's power and the presence of his Spirit are now crashing together, and creation is reversed. Verse 22, everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. Everything that breathed died. 
The word breath is the same word for spirit. So in other words, what happened? God took his spirit away from creation. And when God's spirit is removed, life is ended. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us how God prepares and gives good land to the humans, and then he gives us his spirit, his breath of life. In Genesis 6, he takes the good land away and takes his spirit away as a response to human wickedness. Kind of like a a mom who comes in and, you know that toy you're playing with and you're destroying and hitting your sister with it? I'm going to take that away. And the child is going to cry injustice. But we know that that mother is well within her right and her responsibility to take away that which the child is abusing. Or like a mother, remember, I'm trying here. Or like a mother who built the coolest blanket fort ever. My wife builds really cool blanket forts, maybe even better than the ones that I make, maybe. Build the cool, and every time the kids go in there, what do they do? They fight and yell. I'm not saying my kids, this is an illustration. You know, every time they go in there, they fight and they yell. They bring in the youngest sibling and pound on them and abuse them. What's mom going to do? Every time they're in there, they're nothing but evil all the time. What's mom going to do? She's going to fold up the blankets, put the pillows back on the couch, put the kitchen chairs back by the table, and the kids will yell, like, what? You're the worst mother in the world. But mom is doing what mom should do because she's rescuing her kids. This is the image that we're supposed to have when we see God take away the land and remove the presence of his spirit. God is not, God is not up in heaven shooting water at people to kill them. What he's been doing by his spirit is holding the chaos back and the evil and corruption of humankind causes God with grief in his heart to just let go. But the Lord rescues the godly he saves them, and they find shelter in him. The only ones in this story who continue to enjoy the blessing of the Spirit of God are the righteous. The only ones who have life, the only ones who are rescued from judgment and death are the ones who have put their trust in God's way of salvation. They may have looked silly at first to their neighbors, but when the day of judgment came, they didn't look silly anymore. Test, test. In the New Testament, Peter reflects back on the flood story. The world that had become so corrupt and full of violence was destroyed in a massive flood, Peter says, but he also reflects on the future. And he says there's still judgment being stored up for those who are bringing, who are bringing corruption and violence and oppression and injustice. 2 Peter 3, 6-7, God used the water to destroy the ancient world in a mighty flood and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. If while reading about the violence and destruction and, and the state of the world in Noah's day, if, if you were thinking, it kind of sounds like today, you're thinking kind of like Peter. But even today when we look around, there's so much corruption and violence and oppression and injustice. 
But when you look at the flood, it's not just a vengeful God pouring out retribution on a disappointing human race. His motivation was not vengeance or anger. We're told his motivation was grief, and he stepped in to fix the problem. But even as his judgment was not this direct attack, it was the removal of his protective hand. God didn't ruin the world. Humans ruined the world, and God was cleaning up the mess. Mom didn't ruin the blanket fort. The kids did, and she was fixing the problem. Peter reflects not just back on the doom of that day, but Peter says there's actually judgment being stored up for a future day. But God is gracious, and his hand of protection is patient. But Peter says, the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Peter's saying, don't sit back in a position of apathy, thinking that God doesn't still have the same attitude towards sin and corruption that he did in Noah's day. God is still grieved by sin. God still intends to deal with those who are ruining his creation and participating in violence and oppression. But God is patient. Why? Because he loves us. He doesn't want us to experience his judgment. He wants us to repent and be saved, to take on the righteousness of Christ and be rescued so that he could be a shelter for us and take us into his new garden of Eden as he recreates that which he originally called very good. Chapter 2 of, verse, of Peter, uh, pardon me, 2 Peter 3.15, the end of that passage says, Remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Do you wonder why sometimes God allows certain injustices to continue? Do you wonder why God allows wars to rage and warlords to prosper for a season? Because he's patient. But don't just wonder why he allows other people to keep sinning. Sometimes I wonder why he allows me to keep breathing. Because sin runs right through my heart as it does yours. And God's patience and his mercy and his grace offers me opportunity to repent. In the meantime, get on the boat. Get on board with God's plan for salvation. And what I mean by that is God has provided an ark. He has provided a way for salvation. He has given us Jesus. Jesus is the rescue plan. Jesus gives us his righteousness. He makes our relationship with God right so that we can stand before God fully healed, fully whole, fully right with him with no sin, no anger, no animosity or unforgiveness in the way. Jesus makes us right as we trust in him. Jesus makes us blameless. Jesus was the only pure and spotless sacrifice. And he imputes that. That means he gives us his blameless status so that we have the status just as if we had no sin, no flaws. Jesus makes us blameless by his own blood. And Jesus invites us to walk with him as Noah walked with God. Friends, this is how we can be saved. It's how we can receive the Spirit of God and live. It's how we can survive 
the coming judgment and how we will continue to experience the blessing of God's good land and his spirit, not just now, but for eternity. Because new creation is coming. It started with the arrival of Jesus into the world. It's not ironic that when Jesus was first spotted after his resurrection by Mary, she thought he was a gardener because he was planting a new Eden. He was preparing a new home for those who would trust in him for their salvation. But for the new creation to be fully established, the old one will need to pass away. And through Peter, God tells us it won't be through flood, but through fire. And the only thing that remains after fire is that which has been made pure. That is only possible through putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, the pure and spotless righteous one. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in him. Let's pray as the band comes. Thank you, Jesus. God, as we read stories like this, it's sobering, it's challenging to think of what this experience was actually like and how deeply your heart must have been grieved for you to act in this way. But God, we continue to declare our trust in you as a good God. And we recognize, Lord, that apart from your grace and your patience, and your mercy, that we are just as deserving of judgment as those who were washed away in the flood. And so, God, we ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, thank you that by your sacrifice, we can be made righteous once again. We can be given the status of, of the blameless one, and we can walk with God into eternal life. So, Jesus, we ask for you to do what only you can do in our lives. We repent of our sins and, and ask that you would give us the strength to walk in obedience and trust daily with what God is calling us to do. And as we're praying, I just invite anybody who's here who has not put their trust in Jesus Christ for righteousness and blamelessness and salvation today in your heart to put your trust in him Bible says if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're put on that ark to give life, to be given life. So today, Jesus, as we put our trust in you, we ask for an assurance of that salvation and the strength to walk with you daily. Thank you for the family we have around us to encourage us and build us up and walk with us. Lord, help us to stay united, trusting in you and walking with you, even through challenging times. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? The prayer team is going to come. If you want someone to pray with you or encourage you, please come on up and, and join someone up at the front for prayer. But as we sing this song, this song is really a declaration.
both in what God has done for us in rescuing us and caring for us, but also in how we will stand and walk with him, that we are confirming that we want to stick with him because he's the one with the rescue plan. So as we sing it together, meditate on the words, but also in your heart, make this declaration of your trust in God together.